We're living through a technological revolution where the boundaries between the physical and the virtual are blurring, transforming the way we work, meet, consume, educate and entertain. Is this an exciting, brave new world? Or do we risk stumbling into a sci-fi style dystopia? There's a whole policy regime that needs to accompany technology to ensure that its benefits are accelerated and risks are mitigated. That's why the World Economic Forum is holding a global technology governance summit. We want to bring people together around both the potential of technology and what all the governance and policy frameworks need to be in place to kind of maximize that potential and manage all the risks. The GTGS Summit brings together leaders from more than 50 governments and 600 companies to get their hands dirty in the nitty gritty of how we can ensure technology works for all. I sometimes call it the unsexy work, right? It's a lot of the interstitial connective tissue. How do these technologies interrelate with each other? What is the context in which technology is being deployed and how do we ensure that context truly is inclusive and is global in nature. The summit is hosted online by the World Economic Forum and Japan, and this episode of Radio Davos is co-hosted by Japanese journalist Hiroyuki Nishimura of Nikkei. I'm glad you still perceive Japan as a country that has developed many technologies and gadgets. I'm of the Walkman generation. <laughs> right, right. VCRs and Walkman. I'm going to talk about that too. The Global Technology Governance Summit is on April the 6th and 7th. Follow it live and on catch-up at wf.ch slash gtgs21. Looking at the biggest challenges and how we might solve them, I'm Robin Pomeroy and this is Radio Davos. Joining me from Tokyo to take a look at the Global Technology Governance Summit is journalist Hiroyuki Nishimura. Hiro, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, please, if you would, tell the listeners something about yourself, what you do, and what it is about technology that really interests you. Yeah, sure. So I'm a Tokyo-based senior staff writer and an editorial board member at Nikkei. So I cover traditional topics, including finance, um, trade, global economy, as well as new ones, such as um, digital currency. So I find it fascinating to see how the technology is changing the landscape mm. of almost everything and how that is forcing a society to update or rethink its norms and rules. For example, I co-authored a book on Libra soon after Facebook announced its plan to issue the global digital currency, and that's in um, 2019. Did Libra ever happen? Um, actually, they're um, scaling down their plan. It still does exist. Right. Yeah. So I was struck by the fact that technology has come so far as to allow millions of people across the globe to send money or transact with one another in less than a second by merely clicking on a smartphone screen, right? But then governments around the world strongly opposed to Facebook's plan, saying it would conflict with monetary sovereignty and would destabilize the financial system. And they hastily came up with a set of rules to practically ban Libra. And Facebook eventually had to scale down its ambition. So what happened in essence is that the world's leading nations got together and pressured a single private company to alter the design of a single financial product so that it would not disrupt the existing financial system. It's a great example here of the many things that will be discussed at the GTGS Summit. That's how people are rushing ahead or tech companies are rushing ahead with new technologies they're excited about, like blockchain or cryptocurrencies. Um, the enthusiasts for those things are sure they're going to change the world, but they're running into old ways of thinking. And those are exactly the discussions that are going to happen at this summit. Here at this point, I'd like to play you a short interview that I did with Sheila Warren, one of the people putting the Global Technology Governance Summit together. 
Um, I talked to Sheila to get an overview of what the event is all about. Sheila is the deputy head of the Centre for the Fourth Industrial Revolution, the C4IR, which is the part of the forum that looks at technology issues. It has outposts in Latin America, Asia, Europe, Middle East and Africa, and three main offices, one in India, one in your home, Japan, and one in San Francisco. And it was from there that Sheila spoke to me and I asked her first what the forum means when it talks about the Fourth Industrial Revolution. It's a way of describing the uh, blurring of boundaries between the physical, digital, and biological worlds. So the idea is that the third industrial revolution, which really was the advent of personal computing, humans were using uh, digital devices and using kind of online technologies to accelerate things that had kind of been done in the past. So things became more efficient or faster. We could connect in new and different ways. You know, social media is an example of some of these things, uh, the way we, we deal with search engines. This next revolution is really about a much more fluid human and machine interaction. So it's things like looking at uh, blurring the lines. I think a great example of this is, is the whole self-driving car phenomenon. It's where humans are really going to be outsourcing some of our autonomy and even some of our agency to machines. And what does that mean for how we interact with each other and what uh, the, the effects are on society? So that's the fourth industrial revolution. What does the center for the fourth industrial revolution do, Sheila? What we're trying to do is really explore the reality that technology does not operate in a silo. And while innovation tends to be very rapid, sometimes it can seem very sudden, it's gradual and then sudden uh, as the trope goes, uh, there's a whole policy regime that needs to accompany technology to ensure that its benefits are accelerated and risks are mitigated. And I would argue just as importantly, that it is actually providing access to a more inclusive world, that we're not just stra accelerating stratification that we see in society today, but that we are addressing that head on. Now, that is not going to happen without policy and governance that are really focused and prioritize these kinds of efforts. So the goal of our work is to, I sometimes call it the unsexy work, right? It's a lot of the interstitial connective tissue. How do these technologies interrelate with each other? What is the context in which technology is being deployed? And how do we ensure that context truly is inclusive and is global in nature? Can you give us a couple of examples of where there's this connecting tissue, connecting what with what? What are the kind of things you're dealing with at the center? I would love to. And so stop me when I go on too long because I could talk about our exciting work all day. Uh, you know, one example that we talk about quite a bit is, is a very, it's an easy to understand example. So I'll kind of start there. Uh, so drones, drones were, uh, well, drones remain a very critical part of the environment and they're underrepresented in terms of, of what they're really doing in terms of providing mobility right now, access to vaccines in remote locations, all kinds of different things. And so uh, the country of Rwanda decided they really wanted to be a test bed for, for drones and to really kind of accelerate the benefits of drones and experimentation around drones and to be a location where that could happen very robustly. But they needed policies around that. They had to think about things like airspace. They had to think about things like the effects of, of noise, the effects of how this could be disruptive, the effects of what would happen if drones had the ability to fly over personal airspace and take photos of people, all these kinds of things that we know happen, right? We've seen a lot of the tabloid press around drone photos that then get published. There's all kinds of things that happen there. So how do you regulate some of that? And so the drones team here rolled out um, a, a draft policy, it became legislation, and we're able to experiment with that. And that's now being used uh, all over the African continent and in other parts of the world as well uh, to kind of say, here's how you responsibly regulate drones while spurring ahead innovation. 
So that's kind of a very kind of easy to understand example of what policy can look like because policy often is translated as regulation. I think there are more abstract, abstract examples as well. We issued a paper recently that was talking about blockchain technologies and how they intersect with legacy technologies. Because the reality is that while those who are blockchain enthusiasts are still, still remain convinced this technology will be used for absolutely everything and what do we even need anything else for, there's going to be a significant period of time where legacy systems are interacting with blockchain-backed systems. No one really what talks about that, but it, you need to have the policy that uh, it talks about that connection space, right? That interstitial space, whereas data flows from a blockchain-backed system to a non-blockchain-backed system, how do you govern that? What do you do? Maybe if you remind the listeners what blockchain is, and then an example of where it actually is being used, but there is this problem of it interacting with the existing infrastructure. Yeah, well, I would say that this happens everywhere. You know, so a, a classic example is if you do buy Bitcoin, which people are familiar with, and I'll go into a definition of blockchain very quickly in a bit. If people buy Bitcoin, well, there is an on-ramp to that. You purchase Bitcoin using usually your currency of choice. Let's just say for the sake of argument, you're using yen. And so you have to onboard into that system. And then at some point you offboard from that system, right? So the Bitcoin network is a fully decentralized protocol, meaning there is nobody in control of that system. Uh, a blockchain in a nutshell is a new way of providing verification around exchange of information. So rather than relying on a central mechanism like a bank or a payment provider to prove that, you know, I'll use money, money has debited my account and credited in Ruth's account, right? We just trust that that's happening magically because we trust that our banks are doing the right thing on the back end. And there's mechanisms to ensure that that is actually happening. Uh, with a blockchain, there is no such intermediary. You're relying on a network of computers that are anonymous to each other all over the world, and they are recording a transaction pretty much simultaneously. I'm oversimplifying here. Uh, and so the idea is that you can trust in that system, frankly, in some ways more than you might be able to trust in a banking system, particularly if you're in a case in a, in a country where you have hyperinflation or you know you can't trust your central bank or whatever it might be. So, um, so, but what does it mean to move from a system with no one in control to a system with very tight controls? That is complicated. There should be some concept of how you're governing that transition in and out of these systems. Now, the paper does not focus specifically on financial services because this is happening all over the world. It's happening in supply chains. As goods move uh, around the world, some shippers and other actors in supply chain systems have actually uh, use, are using blockchain-backed systems and some aren't. So the, the indicators of the data is moving in and out of a blockchain system right now. And where does liability attach? How do you ensure in that situation? You know, who's responsible if things go wrong? These are really critical questions that we think are very important to ensure that the technology is deployed responsibly. Sheila Warren, one of the people putting the summit together. Now, Hiro, back to you in Tokyo. How do you feel about technology? It's exciting for some people daunting or scary for others. It might be the way to save humanity and our planet, or it could be the path to a dystopian future. Give us the view from Japan. It's a country famous for developing many of the technologies and gadgets that have changed our lives over several decades. What's the feeling in Japan? Is 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 technology kind of this great new thing, or is it something we need to be scared of? Yeah, so I'm glad you still perceive Japan as a country that has developed many technologies and gadgets. I'm, I'm of the Walkman generation. <laughs> right, right. And so, I'm going to talk about uh, that and too. VCRs and Walkman. <laughs> Great stuff. Yeah, because today, you know, you know, many people in Japan are feeling we have lost that advantage to other nations like um, China and South Korea. 
So I think Japan generally had a utopian image about technology during most of the post-war period. But that has started to change during the past decades. And that, I think, is partly due to what I have just said, that Japan is falling behind other nations. In 1970, Japan hosted the World Expo in Osaka. And this event is emblematic of Japan's rising optimism and um, confidence towards technology. The theme was progress and um, harmony for mankind. Optimistic view about technology prevailed for decades after the Expo, and I think that was largely fueled by the sense that Japan's technology was rising quickly. So I recently watched a replay of the 1985 movie Back to the Future, and there was a scene in which Martin, the protagonist, um, time travels to the 1950s, I think it was to 1955 or something, and has um, had a little exchange regarding Japan with the um, young version of mad scientist Doc, right? Um, as the two try to revive the time machine DeLorean, which was broken, Doc, you know, living in the 1950s, discovers a failed circuit and says, oh, no wonder this circuit failed. It says it's made in Japan. And Martin replies, what, what do you mean? All the best stuff is made in Japan, right? So indeed, many products featured in that 1985 film, whether they were, you know, pickup trucks, camcorders, or Walkman, which you loved, uh, they were all from Japan, right? So Japan went from a low-tech nation produced, producing low-quality stuff to high-tech nation producing the best stuff. And it's interesting to see that film today because that course of events took another turn since the 1980s as many of those high-flying manufacturing goods lost luster and were displaced by products from other nations such as China and South Korea. So now, one, one can argue that manufacturing goods will naturally give way to countries with lower production costs, right? But then why was Apple able to succeed with its iPhones? And why didn't corporate Japan shift its focus to new high-tech areas to give rise to companies like Google or Facebook, right? So as Japan lost its edge, optimism about technology waned, and people started to see the dark side of technology, that, you know, it can displace workers or allow surveillance or, you know, whatever. There is that shift of things. So that 1970 Expo, that's really interesting because we were hearing from Sheila Warren, who was defining the fourth industrial revolution. I guess in 1970, we were kind of on, on the verge of the third industrial revolution it was managers landed on the moon but also computers were just starting to to become uh, something you might consider having in the home and certainly in the next decade or 15 years real heat of the third industrial revolution and japan must have been at the forefront of that and now we're talking about the fourth industrial revolution which as sheila said is this kind of a seamless meshing between um, those technologies, the data, the physical and the virtual that's happening right now. And you're right, there is a lot of concern about those things, about data data privacy. It's so invisible, so much of this technology. A lot of people, are, we're not quite sure what's what's happening with our own data, with our, which is becoming more and more vital. We, we often don't know who owns our own data and where is it going. I mean, have you had any experiences like that in Japan? 
So there was this scandal involving Line Corp. It's a Japanese messaging app provider that is popular in Japan and also in Southeast Asia and has users totaling 86 million um, in Japan alone, right? So it's a big company. So it was revealed that the app's users' personal information had been accessed 32 times by technicians at the company's affiliate in China without users being informed. It was also learned that personal data was stored in South Korea, right? Now, Line claims it has not violated the law as its data protection guideline shown to the customers uh, states that consumers' personal information could be transferred overseas, right? The company's CEO, nevertheless, had to publicly apologize for being inconsiderate to the users. And he also had to pledge that access from China be blocked and data in South Korea be repatriated to Japan, right? The incident grabbed headlines in Japan and underscored the ambiguity of rules and practices when it came to how data can be accessed or transferred um, across border. So what's clear is that the incident started debate in Japan regarding data protection, protection, and some people are giving it a somewhat nationalistic spin, right? That's where it kind of worries me. You're listening to Radio Davos with me, Robin Pomeroy, and my co-host in Tokyo, Hiroyuki Nishimura, taking a look at the Global Technology Governance Summit. We'll be back with more right after this trailer for our sister podcast, Meet the Leader, in which people at the top of the world of business let us inside their heads. If you accepted what people were saying about you and typecast yourself, you know, I would have ended up completely different. I refused to do that at some level. What habits help top leaders focus on what matters most? That's the question asked on the latest Meet the Leader, a special episode celebrating the podcast's six-month anniversary, all by compiling some of the best habits and mindsets that leaders have shared so far. These are habits that have stuck with me, like why Bank of America's Brian Moynihan says you have to look out in. Don't think about what you're doing. Think about what the person is actually doing the work in that organization. How do you make it the easiest for them to do that? And why Dario Gill of IBM Research blasts Johann Sebastian Bach on the way into work. I really believe that it truly orders my mind. As part of this celebration, I've included top habits shared by leaders at World Economic Forum events, like insights from Google's Marion Croak on how she finds innovative solutions to big problems. When you look at the amount of need there is in the world, that that's what gives me both the motivation to keep going and, and thinking of, of new things that can help. We'll also listen to Alibaba founder Jack Ma on the types of people he surrounds himself with and why he prefers attitude over pedigree. I like the people who never give up. They don't complain. Those people are always optimistic. There's all that and more on the latest episode of Meet the Leader. I'm your host, Linda Lucina. Listen wherever you get your favorite podcasts. This is Radio Davos, where Japanese journalist Hiroyuki Nishimura is helping me look at the World Economic Forum's Global Technology Governance Summit. Hiro, before the break, you were talking about data being stored abroad and concerns that that has raised in Japan. And you also mentioned to me, before this program, a Japanese policy aimed at making it easier for companies to move data around the world, something called Data Free Flow with Trust, or DFFT. What is that? 
This is an idea regarding data governance that former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe proposed at the World Economic Forum annual meeting in January of 2019. So DFFT basically calls on nations to refrain from imposing excessive restriction and allow instead smooth cross-border data flow so that data or the uh, oil of the 21st century can be utilized efficiently to spur economic growth, right? So what Tokyo does not want is data localization or requirements by governments that um, data be stored or processed locally. But after the line scandal, which I just mentioned, people are starting to demand that data stay home. So that data localization sounds inconsistent with the concept of the FFT. Let's hear again from our colleagues at the Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution, Sheila Warren, and before her, her colleague, we've not heard from her yet, Ruth Hickin, who was talking to me about a session at the Tech Summit where they'll discuss whether we should add a T for technology into the favorite acronym of every progressive-minded boardroom, ESG. That's the environmental, social, and governance aspects of business performance. This is Ruth Hickin. We are positing that you might want to put the T in ESG. I don't think we're making any firm commitments to that, but really, you know, I think it's great. It's huge that there is now, you know, a very broad consensus that there needs to be board level accountability and reporting on, you know, your stakeholders and that including, that includes environmental impact as well as social impact. But, you know, clearly, uh, I think we're all on the same page that now technology can have as much impact as you know your your emissions can. So, what we're trying to um, have a debate about during the summit is: Do we need to put the T in ESG? Do we need to have board level conversations around accountability for technology investments, for the technology's impact on your broader stakeholder group, or even just your employees? So, it is the AI tool that you're using leading to surveillance of your employees, for example, where? Where does the kind of buck stop in that conversation? And Gillian Tett from the Financial Times will be our moderator on that session. Um, so I think it's going to be a really interesting debate. Um, and I think a conversation we'll see develop over the next few years. I think there's so many places. There's so many huge questions that need to be answered. Uh, there's an interesting question as a general matter around what metrics we're using uh, around uh, environmental, frankly, but also social implications of technology and how we're contextualizing technology. There's still this tendency to see technology as, as a tool rather than as a critical component of our society. And, you know, we know we talk quite a bit, I think, uh, in certain parts of the ecosystem about digital nativity. Like, idea that uh, children born today, you know, really don't understand uh, communication that's not intermediated by a digital device or by some sort has some sort of machine component to it, whether that's that they're engaging with an algorithm or a chat bot, you know, whatever, or what do we know, our AI team actually has a whole project they're doing on responsible standards around uh, the use of AI in toys and with children, because it's just a really critical component. We're getting a new generation that's going to come up that's going to be crypto native. It's going to really fundamentally interact with decentralized systems, have a very different concept of their agency in a digital environment. A lot of this is, you know, what are responsible principles, the things we talk about across varieties of technologies. How do we ensure that what we are building does not bake in certain kinds of bias? How do we make sure there's an ethical frame and that there's responsibility and accountability 
around building technology ethically. How do we think about transparency? What are the appropriate norms of transparency, given that our current model around, well, I'll take data as an example, our current model is one of what we call notice and consent that doesn't really work. It's kind of broken. Uh, right now, in order to be effectively educated about what you can consent to, you have to have notices pop up on you constantly. And we all have this experience going ar around the web and just having this thing that comes up that we have to kind of process quickly and understand and then provide acceptance to or modify. It doesn't really work. And no one reads those. That's exactly right. <laughs> notifications exactly right. They, when they go on for 30 pages. Correct. And is, 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 it, is it okay that companies can just produce a ream of stuff, no, millions, probably billions of people are just clicking, yes, I read it, because they just <laughs> want to get to see, you know, the cat video. That's right. That's exactly right. What is the responsibility that we each need to play as actors within this ecosystem, as individuals, as companies, as government? What is our collective role? And then what is our individual role uh, in ensuring that we are building a system that is much, it's more comprehensible, it's more transparent, it has built-in accountability, and all these different topics that come up, mostly in silos, but not around the broader topic of technology and society. Sheila Warren and before her, Ruth Hicken. Hero, are there any particular sessions on the agenda at the Global Technology Governance Summit that you'll be looking out for? All these sessions appear extremely interesting. There's a session in the token economy. I also like to see what the panelists from Japan will have to say, right? Uh, Nakanishi-san, um, he's the chairman of Hitachi. Um, he will appear in this session named the Shaping the Future of the Data Economy. Um, Nakanishi-san is also the chairman of Keidanran, or um, Japan's largest business organization. This organization is a strong supporter of the government's data free flow with trust, DFFT. And I'm curious as to what kind of message he will send from the business side on this matter. And of course, many people will be following this technology summit to understand more about the cutting edge stuff that could change our lives in ways we might not imagine. I asked Ruth and Sheila to pick out some of the frontier technology that we'll hear more about at GTGS. I think in a way, all of the technology we're talking about could be described as frontier, but what we're saying is those that are really kind of so far advanced, they aren't in common use at the moment. And we're exploring how those could be applied now and what the governance around those should be. So it's everything from synthetic biology and bio threats to AR in the workplace. But one that I'm definitely really excited about is the one around space and satellite technology. So space or satellites in particular actually have the potential to connect the remaining 50% of the population onto the internet, for example, or provide real-time high-resolution imagery of our planet to do things like detect environmental damage or um, monitor sort of poverty alleviation efforts, for example. So this one is particularly cool um, because we have an AR component to the session. So we'll have Will Marshall joining us, um, who is the CEO of Planet Labs. And we, together with him and our strategic intelligence team, have developed an AR rendition of a satellite. So at, some, at one point in the session, you'll get to see a satellite in your living room, in your office, to kind of understand how small they are, how uh, much potential they have for benefit and at scale in a really quick way. So 
I would certainly tune into that and anyone will have access to that AR tool. I hope you've called the session the final frontier technology. <laughs> we should. It was we, hotly contested. <laughs> we haven't been uh, punny enough with that session. There's so much more to talk about. It's a packed two days at the Global Technology Governance Summit. Most sessions are available to watch at wf.ch slash gtgs21 and across social media using the hashtag gtgs21. Hero, thank you so much for joining us to preview the summit. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Many thanks to my co-host Hiroyuki Nishimura of Nikkei and to our guests Sheila Warren and Ruth Hickin of the World Economic Forum's Centre for the Fourth Industrial Revolution. The World Economic Forum has articles, videos and podcasts on many of the world's biggest issues. Find them at weforum.org and across social media, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok, YouTube and on Twitter using the handle at WEF. All our podcasts are at wef.ch slash podcast and please join the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. Subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts and if you like us please leave us a review this episode was written and presented by me robin pomeroy with hiroyuki nishimura with studio production by gareth nolan we'll be back soon but for now thanks for listening to radio davos and goodbye <laughs>